For those of you that are new this morning uh, to our little 12 South congregation, we are, uh, are very excited to be able to tell you about uh, the journey that we're on. Uh, both churches, our downtown location and 12 South here, are talking about our journey into the gospel. We are uh, referring to the three journeys that we really are asking all of uh, our midtowners to take, which is a journey into the gospel and a journey into community and a journey into service. And the idea here is, is for you to ultimately be able to answer that question, those three questions for yourself, is really what we would like you to kind of think about is we would like you to answer the question, what, what is the journey that you're taking into the gospel? What is the journey that you're taking into community? And what is the journey that you're taking into service? Those three areas. We feel that in talking about those three areas, they really help us understand what we're talking about as far as our mission statement, to grasp God's vision for our lives. So it's important what we're talking about. And today... I think that I wanted to, this week of just spending time in the Word and hearing from some of you with with emails, I really, I think it's really important that we just really simplify this thing for us today. I think that we can really complicate things as we, so many of us, the majority of us have been raised in the church and, and it's not too great of an indictment that we've been raised in the church and the majority of us don't like the church. We've been raised in it, but don't like it. And so there's issues that we have. And so I think some of the issues that we have is that we've really complicated this thing a little bit. Let me start this off by telling you that the great, maybe one of the greatest things in my life was the love that my father, my earthly father showed for me. I've talked with you about him in, in many, uh, on many times and many occasions. He was a man who was deeply in love with Jesus and he was a guy who was just really real. I lost him in uh, 1998. I've lost both of my parents. And uh, it's a big hole in my boat. And Jesus continues to minister to me in my pain every day in that area. But I remember one day that uh, I was playing Little League Baseball shortstop. I was the shortstop. And I was on the second stringer's. You know how, how that goes? That was what we called it that time when basically it said you weren't good enough to play. You were called second string. If you were on third string, you got made fun of and it was kind of ugly. I wasn't that good enough to play on the team. Obviously that, I grew up, you know, we all grew up in that kind of world, didn't we? Remember when you were on the playground and you, everybody's playing kickball and they, you know, the worst thing in the world that could possibly take place was being picked last. I'm sure many of us have stories like that. We kind of grow up in this conditional understanding of life. And after I had been on the baseball team, you know, I kind of thought, well, if I'm, if I'm on the second string shortstop, I rarely got in unless we were really losing bad or if we were really winning great. That was when I got in. Usually I got two innings in. Every game, my father still came. It got to the point of embarrassment where I, I finally looked at my dad and said, Dad, just don't come because I'm not playing. I felt shame. And he would still come. And I'd see him up there behind his, he always wore these, like these, you know, these really ugly big glasses, sunglasses. 
we'd all get done and we'd get, we, you know, we, we'd finish the game and my uniform was clean. Every, every other uniform was dirty. And, um, shook everybody's hand and I, you know, walk into the car with my head down. And it seemed to happen over and over again. And I remember my dad said, hey, let's, let's go. And my dad was an ice cream freak. So he said, let's go get ice cream. And we went and got ice cream. And I remember him asking me a question. And I remember it like it was yesterday. He said, do you, Joel, oh, I need to know something. Do you think that I love you based upon if you're the first string shortstop? Or do you think that I love you based upon the fact that you could maybe hit a home run? Do you think that I'll love you more if you play on first string or hit a home run in the next game? Well, I answer, and I knew the answer. Well, no, Dad. No, I, I don't believe that. Well, I don't want you to believe that, because I want you to know that I love you because you're my son. And there's nothing in this world that will ever happen that will take away that love for you. Be secure in that love was the, was the statement I was getting. That's the statement, follow now, that's the statement of the gospel. The statement of the gospel is God has provided us his son Jesus and we can be secure in that love. There's nothing that we can do as a child of God that will ever take away God's love for us. We're signed, sealed, delivered. God's got us in his hands. He loves us. Now, what the problem is though, is that we live in a very conditional world. All of us do. I don't love my wife with that kind of love, that kind of gospel-driven love. She doesn't love me like that either. So we're all working hard to keep up with the expectations that others have on us. My daughter, Michaela, you know Michaela, the young one, you may not know her, but she usually is down here uh, helping out and they took off to Michigan for the weekend to Shelly's dad's 70 this weekend. And, uh, Michaela is just absolutely completely consumed with our little Jack Russell Terrier, Ellie. She thinks that this dog is going to be lost when she's away from home. She's convinced of it. She's, and so every time I call Shelly last night, hey, how's it going? I hear Kayla in the background. Is daddy taking care of Ellie? This is, this has happened, like this is the millionth time we're doing this. <laughs> is daddy taking care of Ellie? And I, you know, I said, Shell, I said, you know, it's, I, I got it, it's great. And then Kayla, where is she right now? Where is she right now? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you where I wanna be right now. <laughs> okay. She's right here, everything, you know, and I, and all I can think about is, you know, what would happen if something happened to the dog? Well, check this out. 3.30 in the morning, I wake up last night to howling, like that, and I'm going, oh my gosh, Kelsey forgot to let the dog in from her nightly pee. Okay, I know, I know, yeah, I know. Thanks, Kel, that's right. Exactly, thanks for the help. Exactly, I know it wasn't her, but all I could sit up and think about was raise up and then go, oh my gosh, Kayla, oh, oh my gosh, my, my, my if that's Ellie, I'm gonna take a massive hit. 
It's the way we think. It's the way we think. It's the way we think even about the gospel. It's the way that we think even about the Lord. It's a way that we think in our relationships horizontal. And for some, in some way, we transfer that horizontal understanding of conditional love to our Heavenly Father. And in actuality, it's like comparing the North South, the, the North Pole to the South. It's completely different. And it's the kind of love now that we've got to begin to understand. How can I begin to understand the North Pole love? You see? So when we talk about the gospel, that's kind of where we're going a little bit here. And I thought it would be important for us to hit on just two points. And they're two what I would call, I think, as I've spent time with, with you, and, and, and a lot of them come from me too, there are two really misunderstandings that we have as we talk about journeying into the gospel. And let me hit on one real quick, and let me hit on the second one is a little is a lot bigger. But the first one is this: we have our misunderstanding. Number one is this: what is the Bible? Okay, what is the Bible? There's a quote that I ran across this week that said this. Maybe some of you have heard this quote: the Bible was not given to increase your knowledge, but to guide your conduct. The Bible was not given to increase your knowledge, but to guide your conduct. Is that what the Bible is? Is the Bible just one big, giant, ugly rule book? Just a bunch of rules to get us all in line so we can put on our little uniforms every day? Or sometimes if you're down here in the South, I'll pick on you a little bit, but it happens everywhere in the world. If you're just raised to be a good little boy and girl, great little southern girl, looking all good and cute and fine and good, you go to church on Sunday, you give your church, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on. Or even up, even, even where I'm from, everybody up there, you know, you know, uh, you know, the, the blue collar central of Detroit up there, they're all going, well, you know what? You work hard, you be a good boy, you know, you give your offering, we go to church, you know, we, we, we do all these right things in order and you know what? Everything's going to be just fine. And that, and the Bible for many of us is that. It's the, it's, it's a book of rules that we would look at and say it doesn't really have any meaning in my everyday life. And it's sad. Or is the Bible the place where I go to receive a pep talk? Bible is the place that I go to, to be a good Christian and, and I'll go out there and do that and I'll, Jesus, I'll just, I'll somehow solicit your help. As I'm going out to live, do my thing. I just read it and come, will you help me? Jerry Bridges says this about the Bible and I think it's excellent. Listen to what he says. He says, the Bible is far more than a rule book to follow. It is primarily the message of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. With everything in the scripture before the cross, before the cross, pointing to God's redemptive work and everything after the cross, including our salvation or our sanctification, flowing from that work. You follow? So what he's doing there is he's giving us, in a seminary term, a very Christological or Christo or Christ-centered understanding of the Scriptures. That the cross is the watershed event. Everything before, in the beginning points to the cross and we read that last week in genesis where jesus says i will crush the serpent's head and all along here you can see and by the way you can see christ in all of the prophets 
You can see Christ in Moses. You can see Christ in Abraham. You can see Christ in Gideon that we read about a few weeks ago. The cross takes place, and then after the cross, basically everything hereafter, it only can happen because of the cross. So it's called the centrality of the cross. Do you get it? Let me read something to you this morning. If you have your, actually, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter. So, let me wrap up point, point one, this misunderstanding of the Bible. At some point, probably all of us, can you help me here for a minute? At some point, probably all of us are going to have to shut certain doors in our past and how this relates to our lives. If this is going to be nothing more than a rule book for us, then our life will be nothing more than running on, a, running on the treadmill of good things or bad things that we do. Oh, I stepped out of line here. Let me get back in line. It's kind of this moral code thing. It's kind of I've been hit and hit over the head with the Bible. I was raised in some of those churches. Were you? It leads to a very self-righteous life. So what is this? And what is the role that it plays in our life? It's God revealing his son to us is what it is, is what my point is. So that misunderstanding has to be dealt with by us. We have to start thinking differently a little bit about this And now here's the second point. We have a misunderstanding of the gospel. And this is what I want to talk with you mainly about today. We have a misunderstanding of the gospel. So let's understand what the gospel, what the Bible has to say about the gospel. First Peter one. Are you there? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy. God's initiative to us as His people. In His great mercy, He has given us, what does it say there? New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded, you're protected by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And look what he says about that gospel. He says, in this, in the thing that we just talk about, talked about, in God's great mercy, in the fact that I have a living hope, in the fact that I have now a new birth, in this I greatly rejoice. And how many of us do we know, or people know, do they know us as rejoicing people because of what God has done for us in our lives? It's a beautiful truth that we can't spend a lot of time on, but it's just so beautiful that he says this in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while then then look here now for a little while you may have have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials then he gives us a reason why those trials have come verse 7 these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold 
which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I want to stop there real quick and make sure that I talk to you about something that probably 9 out of 10 of us in this room are dealing with, and it's this. We're a suffering people. We're hurting. Some of us have terrible stories to tell, don't we? Some of us right now have a terrible story to tell. And some of us want to ask the question many times, God, why is this happening? What in the world could possibly be going on? Well, when we look here, it's almost as if the Lord is saying, I will use suffering to make you be the kind of people that I want you to be. I don't know about you, but let me tell you about me. The greatest lessons and spiritual lessons that I have gained in my life have come from deep suffering. They have come from the times where I finally realized after my dad had died and I finally realized that I was going to make the God of fly fishing my God, which I did. I retreated to the mountains, Rocky Mountains of Colorado, some of the greatest trout water in the world, and I decided that that was going to be my addiction, my drug that I was going to shoot into my arm. I violated the first commandment at its, at its, at its first premise, that you shall not have any other God before me. And I turned my back on the Lord. I'm a Christ follower. I turned my back on the Lord and said, this will be my God. This will be what feeds me. This will be what I worship. And I did worship it. And it was hard as I spent so many hours alone casting line after line in the water looking for the biggest fish to try to think that at some point, at some point I was going to be filled up. At some point my suffering was going to be in some way eased by this. And the fact of the matter is is that I was telling myself a lie. I was just like the children of Israel. I was bowing down to a worthless idol that I created expectations for that idol to give me that it was never meant to be able to give me, that only God could give me. It's a painful time in my life. And I find it interesting that many much of times of our pain, don't we find it interesting that we do go in search of other gods? Why is that? Why is it that in our deepest pain and our suffering we... We go to look for other things that are going to seemingly fill us, even though many of us could give testimony to the fact today that they haven't done it, they haven't filled it, they haven't helped it, I haven't been healed by it. But we will, and we still do it, even as believers. Great suffering. It's hard. Until I finally came one day where I had done that, and I probably, it's probably two solid, three solid years. At that point, my wife would give testimony to the fact that I was an emotional... I had emotionally divorced her. That would be a good way to say it. I had left her emotionally. So the pain now that I was in, the the God that I was serving had actually massive ramifications for the people that were around me. It was difficult. And I remember day after day, many times when I would go and she'd look at me and she'd go, I love you. And I loved her. I do love her. And I, I had a hard time even saying those words because I felt my pain was so great until the day that I was like the prodigal. 
where it said, I came to my senses. Have you ever had any of those days? I came, he, he, he was eating with the pigs and came to his senses. I just wasn't eating with the pigs, I was just fishing. So I was fishing in the stream and he came to his senses. And everything at that point suddenly just became clear. Like, what in the world are you doing? And at that point, it was very difficult for me. At that point, I had to go on to bended knee on the, on the bumper of my car in a parking lot in Deckers, Colorado, and bow on bended knee to say, Lord, you are God. You are my God. And you are enough for me in my pain. But God used that suffering And he still uses it today when a young man walks into my office this last week and says, I'm fatherless. I don't know where this came from, but I looked at him and I, after he told me his story, I said, I want you to know something. Some of us fatherless sons need to hear another man say this to us. And I want you, I want to say this to you. And I want you to know that your father would be very proud of you today. And I am too. So the point of the scripture is, is that it's really true what God does when he's saying this, that he uses this suffering in all kinds of things. And then look what he says there in verse seven. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes. It's kind of this, the theme of, of this, um, the blacksmith refining the gold by the fire may be proved genuine. Then look what he says in verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's faith. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This is what I love. Listen to what he's talking about. Remember what our definition of the Bible was. This is awesome. Concerning this salvation that we've been talking about, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the prophets of the Old Testament were, were they knew something about this, this, this cross, this, this, this watershed moment that was going to take place in history. And they, they even wanted to know what, when it was going to happen and what was, what, what it was really going to look like. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. So the truth, a lot of kind of, crazy words to say this the truth of the matter is is that the prophets spoke about the cross and the even the angels longed to know what in the world how in the world is this jesus thing going to all work it's really cool i wanted to give you that verse because it really talks about the preeminence and the solidness of the truth of the gospel this new birth this living hope that we have now let me walk you through some misunderstandings. See if you can follow with me and maybe maybe one will apply to you. Trust me, they all apply to me. Evangelicals commonly today think that the gospel is only for unbelievers. Follow this now. Once we're inside the kingdom's door, we need the gospel only in order to share it with those who are still out. Isn't that true? 
So the gospel is this. If that's the door, when we come to by faith to know Christ, we're inside. Obviously, those who do not know Christ are outside. And we many times can treat them like that, outsiders, because we kind of get it all weirded out when we think about the gospel, when we think about ourselves. We think as believers on the inside, what we need to hear is we need to hear the message of discipleship. The Great Commission says, go make disciples. So we're supposed to hear about discipleship. We're not supposed to hear about the gospel. I was raised in a little church that says, well, the gospel is about the four spiritual laws. It's about going and talking to your neighbor. And those were the times where you can actually go knock on your neighbor's door and say, I want to talk to you about Jesus today. And you walk them through the Romans road. Oh. You couldn't do that today if you tried. People would stick their German shepherd on you. But what we want on the inside is we think that we need to learn how to live the Christian life. And we think that the church is here to teach us how to live the Christian life. And doggone it, go do it. Isn't that true? I'm going to give you some principles. How? Just go do it. Read your Bible. Did it. Pray. Did it. Spiritual disciplines. Richard Foster. Fasting. Contemplative. Did it. We check the boxers. That's what we believe this is. I mean, you know, people walk out of here and go, Wait, I thought that, that the church was supposed to uplift me. Well, I, every time I read the scripture, I don't, I don't get uplifted every time. I really kind of get hit between the eyes a lot. Do you? But many of us believe and practice in our lives right now this concept of we need to learn about the Christian life. We need to be challenged to do it. And as a result, the Christian community is what we would call, follow this now, a largely performance-based culture. Which means we think that we earn God's blessing or forfeit God's blessing by how well we live the Christian life. Many Christians have a baseline of acceptance of what they would call acceptable performance. And this is the baseline by which they gauge their acceptance by God. And many times this baseline here is no more than regular church attendance and the avoidance of major sins. If I go to church and if I don't sin, then in some just really cool, mysterious way, I'm cool with God. However, here's the problem with that mindset. What happens is what? I go to church and I don't commit any major sins and then I'm afflicted with the disease that the church has been accused of and our accusers are right. It's called self-righteousness. Well, I didn't. I, I've, I've gained control over my smoking. I've just, I'm above it. And then, you know, I'm with my brothers and, you know, they're still struggling. 
Hey guys, let me just tell you something about how the Lord's given me control. That's called self-righteousness. Well, I've really, I've got this program for porn. Here's what I do. Ching, ching, ching. Check the box. All these things. And I got it down. And if I give it to you, I'm going to change the way. I'm going to start a website. Get on the program. Self-righteousness. After all, they don't indulge in major sins. They go to church. Many times, however, this baseline is no more than very simple things that I think really inhibit us from being intimate with our Lord. Many of us in, as, that are doing this, we, we go to church and our baseline is going to church and don't do the major sins. We don't think that really we need the gospel anymore because the gospel is for sinners, those on the outside, not for those on the inside of the door. But there's another group of committed Christians and the baseline is much higher than this. It's above that one. Baseline includes the regular practice of spiritual disciplines Obedience to God's word, evangelism, involvement in some form of ministry. Now let me make sure that I stop you because this is kind of the watershed moment that you need to hear about and that I have this problem and here's what it is. Here again, if I talk to you about this baseline, the regular practice of spiritual disciplines and obedience to God's word and evangelism, the focus on these baselines is this. Its focus is on this. Outward behavior. Outward behavior. It's report card. Spirituality. And some of us score pretty well. And when our focus is on outward behavior, the trajectory of our spiritual life is always this. Self, self-righteousness, self, me, what I'm not doing, how I'm not getting it right. And some of us have been so beat up by this message that it's a miracle that you're sitting here today. Right? You're shaking your head, right? Many of us even today, you could even make the mistake here at Mercy Hill to think this, that, well, we're, we're a church that calls people into community. And I'm going to make a commitment to be at my K group every week. And if those other people don't show up at the K group, I'm going to look, K group, I'm going to look down my nose at them and say, how dare you? I've made the commitment and you're, you haven't made the commitment. That's called self-righteousness. By the way, why, why do we do community? Do we do community just to do community? Just because it's kind of a cool New Testament thing to do? It's kind of the new thing the church needs to do? Good grief, what a bunch of horse crap. We do community because it is a means by which we get to the cross. It's a means of grace. It's a means of understanding the gospel. This doesn't stop here, by the way. 
Because these Christians on this baseline, they don't get the gospel either. Christian growth for them means more discipline and more commitment. But then it's, it's this. And just follow along with me. I'm really close to being done. There's a third group. There's a third baseline above that. And the baseline of this group includes more than the outward performance or disciplines and obedience and ministry. These Christians also recognize the, de- the need to deal with their sins. They go internal like a critical spirit. I, they're aware of their pride. They're aware of their selfishness, their envy, their resentment, their anxiety. They see many inconsistencies in their lives and they fail to, their failure to witness frequent failure in dealing with sins of the heart. Yet even these Christians are plagued by an unbelievable sense of guilt because they believe that they are always blowing it and because God's acceptance of them is based on their performance, they're completely joyous, joyless, and they're guilty all the time. You ever met those people? I've had weeks like that where I'm like that. Oh, forget it. I, why would I want to even try to preach? Some of the thought, thought that I've had this week or whatever the case may be, why would I even want to do that? For them, life is a treadmill on which they keep slipping farther and farther behind. This group needs the gospel, but they don't realize it. I know it because I was in the group. Here's here's my closing thought. The gospel is for believers. It is for you. It is for me. It is not just for people on the outside, but for people on the inside, because we've really got to realize how desperately needy we are. Will you listen to this for me? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one for whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are what? Healed. We all like sheep. Here it is. Have gone astray. And have a, it should say there, and have a tremendous sense and propensity to stray even on the inside of the house. Would you agree? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Say this this week. Pray this this week. Isaiah 53. Say this, Lord, I have gone astray. I've turned in my own way. Let me stop right now. 
If you're distracted, listen, because the gospel is for you. No matter how many sermons you've heard, how many places you've been, what I'm saying right now is for you. Don't think about anybody else needing to hear this. You and I need to hear this. Lord, I have gone astray. I have made a God out of fly fishing. Or I have made a God out of blank. I have turned to my own way. But you have laid all my sin on Christ. And because of that, I approach you and feel accepted by you. Because you laid all my sin on Christ. And because of that, I approach you and I am accepted by you. Going back to the ice cream stand with my father. Right? So here's the baseline. Because of what Christ has done, when you, when you, and some of you have said, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Here's what it is. Here, here's the baseline. Because of what Christ has done, my focus now is not my performance, but Christ's performance as the sole basis of my acceptance with God. Do you follow that? That's what the focus of our lives is. That's why the gospel is so important to all of us. It's on what Christ has done. I focus on that, and that is where I gain my acceptance. God, you've already accepted me because you've, you've accepted the righteousness of Christ. Christ stood in substitution for me, and that sacrifice that he made was enough. Here's the closing statement. So I, Jerry Bridges says this, So I learned that Christians need to hear the gospel all their lives because it is the gospel that continues to remind us that our day-to-day acceptance with the Father is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ did for us in his sinless life and sin-bearing death. I began to see that we stand before God today as righteous as we ever will be, even in heaven, because he has closed, clothed us with the righteousness of his son. Therefore, I don't have to perform to be accepted by God. Now, I am free to obey him and serve him because I am already accepted in Christ and my driving motivation, here's the key. I wish I could talk more about it. My driving motivation now is not guilt, but gratitude. Have you ever met a grateful person? They're really fun to be around. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your gospel. Lord, uh, when we hear Isaiah, uh, it's pretty powerful for us to, um, to even begin to think about those words. That you actually did come to earth uh, to be God in skin for us. And that you were such a suffering servant. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place. Thank you that God's wrath was satisfied in your death. Thank you now that we can even stand here and call ourselves sons, that we can even receive forgiveness of sins 
that we can have a newness and a joy in our lives, that we can have a hope in our lives because of your cross. Help us, Lord, all my friends, including me, me the most, to get off the treadmill of performing and to think that in some way I can gain more of your love. Christ, you gained it. Lord, help us as we understand this truth. We pray in your name, amen.